This is, this is this is Collected Thoughts with Keyshawn Harper. Hello. Before we start, this is the final part of our three-part series known as Lessons from 2020. Feel free to catch up on the other two before this and come back when you're caught up. Thank you. You are waiting for the trolley to come after a fun day out with your best friend. As you guys are laughing and joking and talking about what to do next, you notice that a trolley is heading towards you at a high speed. You can see that the trolley is on a different track. But oddly enough, that track leads to a group of workers who are working on repairs. You try to yell and tell them to get out the way, but they can't hear you. So instead, you spring into action and you and your friend find a lever that can switch the trolley to go onto a different track. You try to pull the lever yourself, but it's simply stuck. It won't budge. Your friend sees you struggling and decides to help you with one giant tug. And with this big tug, you guys are able to jar the lever free and switch the course of the trolley. But that sudden give of the lever was too much, and it caused your friend to fall over onto the track, thereby hurting their foot. Unable to get up, your friend begs you to help. But you notice that you don't have time to go down there and bring them up. But what you do have time to do is to switch the lever one more time. And by switching the lever, you'll save your friend, but surely kill the workers. The question is, what do you do? Questions like this are known as ethical dilemmas. They are designed to test your boundaries of what are usually known as universal moral principles. There are plenty of questions like this, and I kind of tinkered with this one. But to me, this scenario forces us to answer the question that almost seems to be too taboo to even try to answer. What is the value of life? And before we answer that as an individual, I think it's important to observe how society ranks people. When you look at humans as individuals, it's a real wonder how we've been able to dominate in this ruthless world. We aren't necessarily big, we don't have razor-sharp teeth or claws, and our speed is pretty average at best. But... There are a few things that allow us to thrive despite our lack of physical dominance. Our brains and our ability to put our brains together in order to solve problems. We have always lived and worked together in order to get things done. We give each other roles and expectations that no matter how minuscule they may seem, are all important to the success of the group, the city, or the country. Although I say all the roles are important, It'd be hard to declare some roles are as important as others. Or sadly, we have a hard time saying that one individual is just as important as another. Cultures have always divided people into different groups based on a variety of factors. Think of it as a sorting hat in Harry Potter. No matter who you are, or if you even personally agree with it, you'll be observed and placed into a class of people based on some sort of characteristics that you may or may not have control over. Perhaps the most clear-cut method is looking at a group of what we're born into. In monarchies, some people are born into royal families and are given birthrights that a person born into peasantry can only dream of. Neither of them did anything right or wrong. They simply came into different families. A prime example of this comes in the form of the caste system in India. This social hierarchy system can be dated back to 1500 BC, when the Aryans took control over the Indian population. Over time, the hierarchy was adopted into the Hindu religion, and although it's no longer a formal system of government, it still has its marks on the people today. 
Without getting too deep into it, the social system consists of four groups of people that represent a body part of the creator god Brahma. At the head you have the Brahmins, who are the priests and teachers dedicated to God and uphold the tradition. Representing the arms are the Kshatriyas, who are the ruling class. Those considered Kshatriyas are known as the warriors and are in charge of governance and defense. The Vaishyas represent the thighs and are the farmers, traders, and merchants of society. And finally at the feet are the Shudras, who are servants and laborers. In this society, where you're born in this system dictated who you were allowed to talk to, what job you were allowed to have, and even what your diet looked like. And naturally those of higher rankings live separately from those of lower rankings. And with those separations came different benefits and privileges. Even within each rank there are hierarchies with surnames, what family you came from, all those things affects where you are in society. But what I said was misleading because there's one more class. On the outskirts of it all are the Dalits, otherwise known as the Untouchables. These are the people with jobs such as toilet cleaners, street sweepers, and things of that nature. And with a name like the Untouchables, I'm sure it's not hard to imagine how poorly they were treated. They lived in the poorest of conditions and were denied the simplest of rights. Now officially the system was outlawed in 1948, but that isn't to say that people stopped playing by the old rules. The prejudices and the bitterness between classes are still very prominent to this day. Some parts of India unofficially still seeing it as law. Obviously there are a lot of issues with the system. For one, there is no room for movement. You are destined to born and die as you are. Which if you're a Brahmin or Kshatriya doesn't sound so bad. But it was good as a death sentence if you were an untouchable. Every detail of your life was laid out before you lived it. Which to me sounds like some sort of social cage. And if we're honest, depending on who you ask, the trolley dilemma we spoke of earlier would require one more quantifier. What were the ranks of the people at the end of each track? But for the vast majority of people, they don't think this way. In fact, there are still movements today trying to undo the damage done by the caste system. But if deciding a value of a person based on where they were born isn't the way to go. What about meritocracy? What about classifying people by the skills you have? Let's say you do something that's really important. And to show that it's important, people, I don't know, pay you handsomely. Those jobs that are majorly important will get paid more than something that doesn't necessarily have much of an impact on society. This is a very rudimentary example of having an economic class system. Many countries do this, but the one I'm most familiar with, obviously, is right here in the U.S. In theory, what should happen is that a person would have an option of choosing which profession they would like to go into. And then, if they're able to fulfill requirements to get to that profession, then they would be paid accordingly. Typically, the more training that goes into a field, the higher the value of the skill deemed by society. The higher the skill, the more you get paid. From here, you would have three separate classes. You would have upper, middle, and poor. When presented in this way, at face value, it may seem to be sufficient, especially when compared to systems with limited mobility. But for the sake of argument, let's go with a super hypothetical. Let's just say that one day, 
a deadly virus comes and all of a sudden, things have to stop. We now need to stay far away from each other in order to stop the virus. And because of this, we have a limited amount of human interaction. And we have to limit that amount to times where it's only necessary. People must either work from home if possible, or heaven forbid if their job is not deemed to be, let's say, important enough, then they miss work altogether. What remains of that workforce, in theory, would be those of the high skills, those who are paid the most because they're the backbone of society, those who are essential. But oddly enough, that was only half the case. 2020 has introduced many of us to the idea of essential versus non-essential services, and the people who make up those services possibly being known as essential workers. But who are these people? The majority of essential workers are members of industries such as healthcare, food, and agriculture, emergency services, transportation, warehouse, and delivery, and industrial, commercial, residential facilities and services. This isn't all the essential workers, but this is mostly the lion's share of who they are. And to be clear, these are the people who physically went into work while the rest of us began to work from home. So what this essentially means is that in the eyes of the government, the services these people provide for society outweighs the risk of them potentially contracting the virus. So if their services are so important, then one would think that they were, let's say, getting paid handsomely. But if you were to think that, you'd be incorrect. First off, let's remove those in the healthcare industry. They make up around 30% of the essential worker population, and to be honest, most of them earn great livings. They're highly trained and they deserve every ounce of thanks we can give them. What I want to focus on are those in the other fields, the fields of food and agriculture, the fields of transportation, warehouse, and delivery, and then finally, the industrial, commercial, residential facilities and services. With over 22 million people working in these industries, they make up a good chunk of the workforce in America. When placing them in categories such as these, it can be kind of confusing as to what they actually do. But the thing is, we very clearly know what the industries do because the products of their work are in our faces every day. Even if we don't take the time out and appreciate them. For example, food still has to be grown and harvested. This not only means that the farmers and the farm workers still need to be at work, but also those who work in what are basically food factories. We saw a major drawback to this when the meat processing company known as Tyson had over 1,000 COVID cases in one Iowa factory. Workers were forced to work in close quarters with no special equipment, which naturally led to numerous outbreaks. Which, by the way, became somewhat of a game to Tyson leadership. According to recent lawsuits against the company, employees claimed that supervisors were actually placing bets as to how many employees would get sick. The food industry wasn't the only one facing problems. After all, goods still need to be shipped and transported, so many truckers and warehouse workers were still clocking in and clocking out. Similar to Tyson, Amazon had issues with virus spreading across warehouses with roughly 20,000 cases countrywide. The growing number of cases compounded with the already weak healthcare plan of employees incited strikes of employees demanding better treatment and working conditions. This pandemic only proving the claims that have been made by Amazon employees for years. And finally, what about the industries whose workers we do see on a day-to-day -day basis? 
grocery stores and fast food restaurants remained open. In fact, they were even more busy as people made mad dashes to the stores to pick up food and toilet paper. Anyways, people still needed to eat, so fast food places such as Chick-fil-A still had lines out the wazoo with employees running from car to car taking orders. So with all these people being called upon to work even harder during this pandemic, you would think that these people would have already been seen as essential. However, when we simply rewind the clock back to, let's say, even a year ago, it would be clear that this isn't the case at all. Many of these employees, like fast food workers or some grocery store workers, have been fighting for years to raise the minimum wage, which in many states hasn't moved in years. One of the arguments made by those opposed to increasing the minimum wage is that these jobs just aren't that important or that hard, and that the people in them should just invest in getting training or education so that they can move up in the ranks in a different way. Remember, as we mentioned earlier, the thought process behind this is the more skilled the job, the higher the pay should be. However, it absolutely needs to be stated that the people in these positions were simply asking to have more of a basic income to survive, not million dollar contracts. That's an entirely different conversation we could have another day. But the point is that during this major time of need, the people that society normally idolized, the movie stars, the major athletes, the powerhouses on Wall Street, all of them could do little to nothing to help the country. In previous episodes, we spoke about how such a large portion of our economy is supported by entertainment. And when all that was halted, many people felt dire consequences. And all of a sudden, the people who typically earned less, the people who were seen by many as glorified servants, the people who were told at one point that their job wasn't important enough, these people were now granted a new and illustrious title. The people who were once the untouchables are now the essentials. And as essential workers geared up and worked into the overcrowded factories, as they ran from car to car taking orders and endured the mighty toilet paper raid of 2020, they were called heroes in the backbone of our society. But what will happen once this is all over? When things go back to normal, will we remember this time period? Or will these heroes eventually go back to their regular status as simply the working class? 2020 has not only highlighted issues in our society when it comes to class, but also race. We saw millions of people around the country gather in protest against the issue of police brutality against citizens, more specifically, black citizens. As a former black police officer, I found myself struggling with how to approach this issue. As a person who was on the other side of the protest years ago, I didn't have any issue with the message per se, but I couldn't really figure out what it was. When I took my oath back in 2015, I dedicated my life to ensuring the well-being and safety of others. And I can recall multiple times where I did some things that probably could have gotten myself hurt just to calm down a situation before things could get violent. I felt like I was putting my all and losing a lot because of this. So during the protests this year for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all the others, I couldn't help but to question whether if I was on the wrong side of it all. Was I the oppressor? Was I in some way an accessory to the crimes made by my brothers and sisters in law enforcement? This idea really swirled into my head after having several conversations with people saying that there was no such thing as a good police officer. 
meaning that by simply joining a flawed and oppressive group, I cannot undo the harm the group caused, which as you can imagine can cause someone to question whether or not their literal blood, sweat, and tears went into something that was structurally wrong. I still wrestle with these thoughts, and honestly, that can be an entire episode within itself. But for the sake of today, as we discuss the value of life, it is important to recognize the fact that people still feel the need to exclaim that the lives of black people matter. And when a group of people do not feel safe, I don't think we can disagree on how those people feel about their own safety. Rather, we should listen and understand to try to create actual solutions to the problem. In the beginning of this episode, we asked the question, what is the value of life? And I asked that because I think that may be the overarching question of the year. Whether it's how much the monetary value is of an essential worker, the value of a black person, or weighing the pros and cons of reopening an economy, we may be at a time where we are living the trolley dilemma. Many people are losing their businesses and homes because of the economy shutdown, which will no doubt have ramifications for years to come. On the other hand, we are getting to the point where we are losing over 3,000 Americans per day from COVID-19. To put that in perspective, it is more than the amount of lives lost in 9-11 every day. Of course, the argument is that statistically, the survival rate is rather high, especially if you're young. But honestly, we still don't know the long-lasting effects of anyone who has contracted the virus. And the fact that it's happening to elderly people or with people with pre-existing conditions doesn't justify the loss of loved ones. And full disclosure, as someone who's lost a grandfather to COVID this year, I may be a little biased. But if we're honest with ourselves, most likely we personally will never have to make a decision about anything we talked about today. We aren't members of Congress debating on a stimulus package. We don't make the final decision on if businesses open up or stay closed. And most people aren't ever going to be in a shoot or don't shoot scenario. Unless you're an action movie hero, you won't be forced into choosing between saving the life of a damsel in distress or letting a group of people burn in a building. Life in many cases isn't as extreme as a trolley dilemma. But that isn't to say that we don't provide our answers to that dilemma on a daily basis. It is reflected in how we treat those around us. We can see from a macro level that although we can fight the way society views life, it takes time and coordination on a wider scale. But as that forms, we are provided with opportunities every day to show what life means to us. We can show people that we appreciate the work that they do and the risks that they're taking on doing that work. And we can strive every day to treat people fairly, no matter their class or their race. Over the past few episodes, we examined the lessons we could salvage from the dumpster fire of 2020. Although it's true that this period has stretched a ton of us to our breaking points, with living in loneliness, heartbreaking changes, and in many cases, the loss of people close to us. But at the same time, I believe that we can take these pains and allow them to make us stronger in the future. For now, we have a deeper understanding of how important our time is and how we use it, while keeping in mind that it's also limited. We have learned to brave the winds of change and accept the fact that sometimes we must dance in the current. And most importantly, through the loss of loved ones, we have learned to hold tighter to the ones we still have and treat everyone as if they were essential people. 
Thank you all for listening, and until next time, take it easy. Hey, once again, thank you guys for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, please do us a favor and subscribe. And after that, give us a five-star review. Also, while you're at it, like the Collected Thoughts Facebook fan page. Or if you're more of an Instagram person, follow me, Keyshawn Harper, on Instagram. Thank you guys all for the love. And until next episode, take it easy.